Hello and welcome to episode number 29 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is journalist Heidi Legg. Heidi is currently a research fellow at the Institute of Quantitative Social Science at Harvard, working on the Future of Media Project. She's written extensively about the media landscape in publications such as the Boston Globe, USA Today, The Globe and Mail, CNN, The Atlantic, and more. Most recently, Heidi published three exhaustive and insightful indexes tracking the ownership and funding sources of hundreds of news organizations. It's Heidi's contention that knowing who owns or funds a news organization can better inform news consumers about possible bias or slants. Heidi joined me from her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And now on to my conversation with Heidi Legg. Hello and welcome Heidi Legg to Making Media Now. Thank so, you. Heidi, you are a research fellow at the Future of Media Project at Harvard's Institute for Quantitative Social Science. And we were just having a bit of a laugh about um, how lengthy that title is. Uh, and But you go by an acronym. What's the acronym? IQSS. It's run by a great um, professor, one of uh, Harvard's top 25. There's sort of 25 professors. I think there's about 25 of them now who can float across any school and teach at any school. And um, Gary King is uh, my boss and he's the director of IQSS and he's a brilliant mind at Harvard. And it's been a real pleasure to get to work with him this year. That is excellent. So let me tell you, Heidi, uh, how uh, how I came to know your work really uh, was probably about a year or so ago when I started listening to a podcast that you were doing with Tom Ashbrook. I think you were, it was Swing State and there were there weren't that many episodes, maybe what, six to eight or 10, perhaps. Yeah, Tom and I did about 25 episodes. We both were sort of. Um, oh, were there be- that many? I'm sorry. Not at all. We took a break in the summer and we hit back from September until the election. Um, but we just both had time. We were both sort of on the bench and we wanted to help. We, we just felt like the media was at such a partisan and chaotic moment that we wanted to come to the table and try and bring different voices and and ourselves just trying to understand what was happening across the country. So, like I said, after listening to a few, uh, obviously not enough um, of the Swing State podcast, um, <clears throat> I had been familiar with Tom Ashbrook through the years, but I had not been familiar with you or your work and got to realize that you're a, a lifelong journalist. So bring our listeners up to speed about your career in journalism and how that led to the position uh, with Harvard right now? It's uh, that's a great first question because um, it really is the first time my career has made sense to me. Uh, I am, I was born a Gen Xer um, coming out of college at graduate school in journalism. I I was born and studied in Canada 
um, and a Canadian proud Canadian American. And, uh, I was at Concordia university in Montreal and I actually, my specialty was documentaries and I worked on the D-Day documentary for the anniversary, um, in the mid nineties. And, and then I went to London and worked in documentaries and my now husband of, of 20 some years, uh, I had met at that point. He said, I'm going to California for this thing called the internet. <laughs> and I kid you not, like, that's how we thought about it. And so what year was this? This was 1996. And okay. I think people don't realize that it, it, at that point, like in the early nineties, when you came out of college, your, your job might've had an intranet. Um, and unless you're working for the government or like, you know, like DARPA, like you didn't have an internet yet. And so, I mean, you didn't even have a cell phone. Like I remember my boss at my, one of my jobs had a cell phone in his car that was, you know, the size of like, uh, you know, a rocket ship. And so, um, the, the, you know, the speed and the proliferation of what's happened to our mass communication system is just kind of mind boggling if you're anywhere North of the age of, of, of 45. And right. so, um, I was in documentaries. Of course, I couldn't make a dollar at that. Um, I loved it. Uh, I went out to California for this thing called the internet and I started working with tech companies and I, I started to help these startups like tell their story. And literally our clients were like, like Yahoo and Texas Instrument and Pixar. In fact, you know, uh, Matt Carolian over at the Globe said that this is my like flex. I'm not flexing. It's just to tell you the craziness of the moment. I went on this meeting with Steve Jobs when he was at Next with Did my really? small wow. office. Yes. And I still wow. have the badge. I don't know why I kept it. And he was trying to explain to us all what this thing Pixar was going to be. Yeah. So I came sort of, you know, I was coming at this moment where we were trying to ex explain what was happening with the Internet. And we were also sort of storytellers who only understood traditional journalism. Mm -hmm. And it was just this like crazy moment. So my career for like 25 years has gone back and forth between experimenting in new media to like working in traditional media. And I always wanted to be in traditional media. I wanted to be in the Boston Globe newsroom. You know, I wanted to be at the CBC because that was really the street cred of being a real journalist. What, what, um, what fed that ambition? Did you, were there, were there like seminal moments in your life that turned you on to journalism? Yeah, I think, um, I think in my family, I'm sort of like my sister says, Heidi hates to be duped. So, um, I think I always wanted to like, well, what's the real story? Like, what's someone not telling me? Like, I, I don't like authority. Um, which is why it's really funny now that, you know, uh, <laughs> That, that for me, there's a lot of reasons it's funny to be in media and at Harvard. Um, I really don't like authority. I want to, I want to break away from it. I want to, I want, I think there's new possibility. I'm an idealist. The, the internet made a lot of sense to me. So it's really ironic that now I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to like rein this in everybody. Like I'm the last person I would have thought would be like thinking like, maybe we need regulation because I'm such a believer in like getting to truth. And so when I looked at those traditional newsrooms, um, I, I, you know what, I just, I couldn't get the breaks. I couldn't get in. And mm -hmm. I don't, we could sit here and spend the whole time analyzing why I didn't get into the CBC newsroom and documentary or, you know, why I didn't get hired 
you know, at a certain big newsroom. But the truth is we all have our path and my path kept landing me in these unusual and new and experimental places. And now all of a sudden it all has come together in my current role because I have this reverence and this respect for the traditional media and the traditional role of journalism. Mm -hmm. And I also really appreciate and love this transformation that's happened. But if we look at it in a larger scale picture, which is what I tried to do recently with these indexes, if we look at it on the large scale, it's not like it's anyone's fault. It's just that we have this crazy proliferation of information. We have this massive technology that's allowed us to know about everybody in the world at every second. And then when you come into the U.S., we have one of the most mature and robust news systems. Like we actually have long had a very healthy journalism system because we are the bedrock of democracy. And so it, it, it kind of calls upon us to be the ones to fix this. And, and it's and I think that we need to be looking at this at the aggregate and, and ask ourselves what kind of future media, what kind of ecosystem do we want out of this really renaissance moment that 200 years from now they will look back and call, I believe, our time. So just to step back for a moment, you made reference to these indices that you have recently published, uh, building upon that lab about a week ago. We're recording this conversation uh, middle of May, about a week ago in USA Today, uh, you published a piece around who owns the news. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that indices was an examination of various sources of news, tracing it back to the interests in the organization that that fund those newsmakers. Uh, did I did I uh, describe that? You described it accurately. You described it perfectly. And in fact, what I really appreciate is that you're focusing on the ownership column, because when people go and look at this index, it's basically a spreadsheet. And, you know, one column has the list of 176 media companies. Some like NPR have a thousand affiliates and some are just one like the Atlantic. But I basically list the standalones and the parent companies. And if you Mm -hmm. tally up just the parent company name like Gannett or you know, ABC or Sinclair TV, you know, that if you count that as one and then you count like Wired and the Atlantic and the Boston Globe as one, you get to 176 owners. Mm -hmm. And what I really wanted to focus on were these owners. And I'm not saying that if you own the media, you're biased. What I'm trying to say is if John and Linda Henry don't cover something that affects them in Boston, I can hold them accountable and say, hey, why aren't you talking about the, you know, whatever it is. Right. And where I find it problematic today, because I actually think they're doing a terrific job and ha- allow us to hold them accountable. Maybe they put a little bit more Red Sox in Twitter than <laughs> they do another sports team. But, you know, we know who we know what they own and we know who they are. And so I wanted to be able to have that same accountability across the board. Mm-hmm. And so I said, let's let you know, let's map out who owns the news. So I just want to be really clear because there are some people, you know, I've had a lot of emails since these indexes went up. Why did you measure the traffic this way? Because I also rank them all by their monthly um, clicks. Um, And I had to do that just because I didn't want it to be alphabetical. So when you look at this index, don't really get hung up if, you know, 
this one's at number one and this one's at number 26 and this one's at number 48 might surprise you who's getting all the clicks. Actually, it doesn't mean that they're having that much impact because we know some clicks are just clickbait. But what I really want people to look at is this ownership, because I do think we need to know who owns the news so we can hold them accountable. A couple of things. How do you differentiate between the news and the media? And how do you differentiate between digital platforms, broadcast platforms and and print platforms? So the first question I'll answer media and news. Look, Mark Zuckerberg says he doesn't want to be the arbiter of truth. He says he doesn't want to say who's news. Well, I was like, let's just do a simple tally. Who do we think is daily news? So I love Vanity Fair and Vogue, but they're not on that list. So we tried to think about like, who is a daily news newsroom? Who has a newsroom of people that claim to be journalists? I also say in many disclaimers, there are people on here you might believe to be propaganda. I personally don't think the Epic Times or the Daily Caller are newsrooms. I actually think they're propaganda. But many people in our country believe them to be newsrooms with journalists. Mm -hmm. So they made it on the list. We really wanted to like make sure that we were being um, representative of who people think are the news. And the way we made that list is we went to the Apple News um, app. Mm-hmm. We uh, went on Wikipedia and Googled right wing media, left leaning media in America. <laughs> you know, most popular. We use Comscore's list of who's the media, uh, any tallies in major news papers that said, you know, here's the top media, the press gazette was helpful to us. So we made that list. So that's how we made the difference between news and media. For me, news, I'm not saying these are newsrooms, but for this index, news was who people in America think is a newsroom. I did not include podcasts, which many people now get their news through. I did not include include Substack, uh, Reddit threads, mm-hmm. Facebook groups. I just wanted to get traditional media on paper. Your second question was, how do I tell the difference between the different mediums? And if you remember, Marshall McLuhan was a Canadian. He talks about the medium as the message. Yes. I think we are all on the same medium now. So I actually think that if television and radio and newspapers want to get ahead of the curve, they have to start to understand that they're all the same. There is no difference anymore. They're all the same in the minds of the of the news consumer. Because it's all coming through digital social media. And one of the things I worry about a lot is that um, the way that Facebook has been able to, and Google have been able to micro target um, all of us for ads, mainly political ads or um, advocacy, advocacy and movement ads, ide- what I would call ideological ads, mm-hmm. you will be able to do on local television soon. They're called um, ad- readmissible ads or admissible ads. And so soon, very, very soon, you're going to get one ad on a television network and I'm going to get another. And we're not going to be able to get the same ad or track what you get and I get. And I'm very nervous about the same polarization happening in television news as we're seeing on social media. That's fascinating. So that, that that's got to be enabled by some technology and smart televisions and uh, the fact that the signal is entirely digital. 
it's digital. It's so when you ask me, what's the difference between newspapers and radio and television? I think it's all the same. And in the way you distribute is the same too. You get your distribution by your readers getting an email that there's a PBS show or series you get, you find out there's a new article in the Atlantic or wired through a tweet, you know, it's all coming at us digitally. And I think it's really important that we start to understand that these 176 I list are actually all competing with one another now on the exact same platform. So one one thing I always find a little bit frustrating is when uh, you you read polls, and I think your article cited a poll about levels of trust in the news uh, or the media. And uh, sometimes when you get anecdotal feedback from people who have taken these surveys, they'll mention such and such a person who they like or they do not like. And and so often my reaction is, well, that's not a news person. There's the talk about the disintegration between opinion journalism and and news fact based journalism. Are we allowed to say fact based anymore? (laughs) Well, you know, we we banter around a lot in our um, group. We're a small team, but we've been um, bantering around a lot. You know, what's trustworthy, what's reliable. How do you use that word? Cause someone who listens to Fox thinks that's trustworthy. And somebody else who listens to uh, another channel thinks that's trustworthy. Uh, one is journalism. One seems to be, you know, lies depending on who you ask And we really believe in the scientific process. So we really believe in evidence-based news. So in, when I went to journalism school, evidence could be that um, a university did a study and it gave you metrics that were evidence Mm -hmm. and evidence could also be giving context. So context. So if there were a fire on the street and you go to cover that you're taught, we were taught at journalism school that you go get multiple sources. So you have to have multiple people. It's a small sample size, maybe three or four, but you want to at least have three quotes in a story. That Mm -hmm. was the old rule, right? You and I both know that. So today, um, There's so many voices, which is an awesome thing, but we're also awash in user-generated content that we're all helping put up every minute, every nanosecond. And so I think that perhaps we need to start focusing on evidence-based news and the scientific process. And that's something we think about a lot right now at the future of Media Project and Bharat Anand and Gary King can speak um, better to that as professors and academics than I can, but they've really helped me to understand the power of the scientific community and how the scientific community in many ways has been the best way for us to move forward and progress as a society because the scientist has to actually prove their point other scientists they get pushed pushed around by the other scientists and then the the data wins and so i do think that um that's harder to do for humanities subjects philosophy and languages but certainly uh there are a lot of categories where we could do with a lot more evidence-based news so that's what i would be looking for and encouraging today in our news stream you talk about um urging what you refer to as radical transparency around ownership of of news sources. Tell me how you think that that why that is um, empowering and eventually useful to the citizenry. 
I think that we as citizens, if Pew's uh, study tells us anything, it says 72 percent of Americans really don't trust the news right now. And many think that there isn't enough transparency in funding. So can, funding- can I can I ask a question on that? So when when they say 72 percent of Americans don't trust the news, does that mean that if they hear Lester Holt say that Mitch McConnell said X, Y, Z, 72 percent of those folks think uh, I don't believe Lester Holt. I don't think Mitch McConnell said that. I, I never under what is that? I don't even know what I that think means. That, I, I think don't they're trust probably the talking news. in the aggregate. We'd have to go look at that study and we should post it. Actually, when I post this interview, I'll post that Pew um, number with it. Sure. So people can go look. Um, I do think that we have some journalists people really trust. And but we're also seeing the rise of the cult personalities. So we were talking the other exactly. day in a meeting with someone from Silicon Valley who was very helpful helpful to us when we were explaining to them, hey, we want to get more evidence-based news, scientifically proven news into the system because people are like, can you just tell me, do I trust a vaccine? Well, yes, you trust a vaccine. The science shows you trust a vaccine. So, you you know, when there's moments like that, when there's a crisis moment, our society needs some facts. We need a common spine of, of, you know, how we protect ourselves as a nation and as people. And when we think about the rise of the cult personality, it can be someone like um, the Kardashians certainly like did that whole reality TV thing. And we all, everybody seemed to all of a sudden know these people through reality TV, but you also have these, this polarization towards certain personalities rather than ideas. So like Elon Musk would have a cult following, you know, Donald Trump has a cult following Mm -hmm. Heather Cox Richardson, a historian all of a sudden had a cult following because she was giving people all this information. I'm a huge fan of her work. And so I think what's happening is the Silicon Valley person was explaining to us and did, I thought it was very insightful. They said, it used to be that when you wanted to push something, whether it was a political candidate or a religion or, you know, a product, you would diffuse your people across a country. So you'd have a priest in every town or you'd have a you'd have an ad campaign in every town or you'd have a salesman in every town. And now you don't need to do that because Mm -hmm. you can get to everybody in a micro like we were going back to these, I think they're called addressable ads. I feel like I'm using the wrong term, but these new, the way you're going to be able to digitally target ads on TV, like you do on Facebook, um, that now you can just go and like checkbox all the little things you want and message that person based on behaviors you've collected on them and the data on them on the internet. So you can say, oh, okay, Michael and Heidi really like, reading about William James, the philosopher, and then, and they are both this age and they like chocolate and they both, you know, went to New York city this year. And so they have all this information and they can target that ad specifically to you and I. And I think that that has given rise. And this is what this person was explaining to us to um, cult personalities, because we've all been put into these tribal silos and it may not even be tribal the way we say, whether it's gender or race or urban or rural, it's even more micro than that. And I think that's a really dangerous thing for society. And so when you you say, who do you trust? Do they trust Lester Holt or do they trust Leslie Stahl or do they trust Chris Wallace or, you know, whoever the person is? Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me nervous because it's also feeding into this cult 
following the cult of the person. And instead, we should be asking how many journalists are in that newsroom? How many of them actually practice journalism? Is the owner um, hands off and owning it because of civic good? Or is the owner or funder of that newsroom doing it because they're trying to skew a message? Those are the questions I think as a society, we should start to demand of our news ecosystem. And that's where it gets really thorny and complicated because we don't have an answer for it. But I think we have to start asking those kind of questions. Do you ever get the sense that it's easy to get um, nostalgic for a time that perhaps really didn't exist in the pure form that we often imagine it. So for instance, you know, a hundred years ago, William Randolph Hearst was a very hands-on uh, newspaper owner. You know, he was, he was shaping events, uh, you know, to, in one, in one case, facilitate. So was Henry Luce. So was Henry Luce in Time Magazine and Condé Nast had his fingers all in the pie too. And I and I and I think that sometimes, particularly in the popular media, when there's depictions uh, of, say, newspapers 50, 60, 70 years ago, there was this very strong, you know, church and state uh, kind of a, a setup where the, the purity of journalism was unassailable and it, uh, it, it and it never thought about the uh, impact either of a of a political agenda or a bottom line is the problem more profound now because of the proliferation of so-called sources of news and the varied agendas of the owners. I think, Michael, you've hit on something really important. I am not romantic as a female for all of these men being the keepers of our news. I'm not nostalgic for that. I certainly can wax poetic about many of the great owners of print and um, newspapers and magazines. And uh, of course, it's hard not to respect someone like Walter Cronkite. At the same time, I am romantic for the limits of the map. So I don't multitask well. Everybody in my family knows that. I'm like, I can only do one thing at a time. So for me, this proliferation, as much as I see its promise, it's really overwhelming to me. So what I am romantic about is I'm romantic that there were a few sources that I could make a call if Henry Luce uh, you know, or Condé Nast or William Hurst were putting their fingers in the game, like thumbing on the scale. So I'm romantic for the um, the scale of it all. Sure. But I understand that the proliferation is a positive thing because it's given us so many more voices and diverse voices. And we know so much more. And, you know, as my dad always jokes, I'll just ask Dr. Google a question, you know, like I love all those things, but I think that it is too chaotic right now. And what I can bring to the table with this telling you intimately about my own limitations of, of needing things to be smaller scale and more manageable. I do look to people like Facebook and Google to start to put a map on this. And it doesn't mean putting up a gate, but it does mean having some form of decorum of what it constitutes to be a newsroom. But I need the news to be more organized so that I long for and, and I'm nostalgic for a time when you knew who was the news and where to go to get the news. And you understood who was behind that news, because I do think it is upon the consumer 
to be able to be a critical thinker. And that goes to a bigger thing like, do we educate our population enough? Do we teach enough science so people can get to evidence-based um, inquiry? And uh, I am nostalgic for that. I think there's just too many people claiming to be news today who aren't what I would have considered news when I came out of journalism school. Mm-hmm. And I do think that we need to put some sort of framing around that. I, I The fourth estate is meant to be, it, it is inherently left-leaning because it's holding power accountable. Right. So, and, and it needs to be that anybody can come and be a truth teller and, um, and sort of main street journalist. But I think that we need to demand more of our newsrooms um, or we need to be actually we need to demand more. Sorry, not of our newsrooms, but of the platform companies who are organizing the algorithms that send us information so that we know who's news. In fact, Apple News was really promising to me for that reason alone. I loved it that Apple was literally saying we're going to become a newsstand. And I think that they have a. It's, they have the pot, the potential there, but it hasn't been potentiated yet. I think they need to fill that newsroom with more and they need to organize it by topic. Cause right now you just go on and you can have like good housekeeping and vanity fair and the New York times. And we just need organizing in the news. We do need some organization. It also seems that one, one dynamic that's changed in the whole equation is news as a revenue source news as a revenue stream. There were many decades where, you know, back in the not so story days of ABC, CBS, NBC, where the news division, you know, the the um, the bean counters would sit down every year and say, OK, well, we know we're going to lose money in the news division, but that's OK, because they thought of it perhaps as a public service or maybe even the, if it wasn't that noble, at least it was it gave them it gave the network positive brand equity. Those days are most definitely gone. And one thing that always strikes me, and I'd be interested in hearing your take on this, I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. It blows my mind that if you ever watch the the nightly news, uh, you know, the network news, you come away with with two observations. One, everybody in this country has to be on multiple pharmaceuticals because that's all they advertise. And number two, it's like, do we really only have the appetite for three stories at a time? Each of the networks are covering the same three stories in a little bit different way. And then we got to wrap up with the same sort of, but wait, we've got a retired firefighter who reads to blind dogs to end, you know, to end the piece. It's the same template. And, and as you just said, there's more opportunity to tell more stories in more different ways. But you'd never realize that from the, the very fixed and finite amount of so-called news uh, that's being offered up on a daily basis. You're totally right. I'm looking for a story that was in the Atlantic yesterday. I sort of like posted it three times in a row because I thought it was so <laughs> great. Um, and uh, it's by Amanda Ripley. Can the news be fixed? Yeah. And it's all about um, television news, but more not even evening network news, but local news. And they interview this guy. I really want to meet him. His name's Sean McLaughlin. He's the vice president of Scripps News Division. Now, people might be like Scripps. What's Scripps? But if you look at the index that we created, Scripps has a pretty big hold. It owns Absolutely. like 
right. 200 local television stations. And he, they are trying this new thing. I think I'm looking for the name of it. I think it's called 360. And remember how I was just saying that in journalism school, we came in and we're told to go get a multiple sources there. They've realized how flat and, and, and how formulaic the news has become on television. And they're trying to give people more opinions, longer pieces. And they're, they're kind of having good results. You should read this story. It's a great piece in the Atlantic and Amanda Ripley. And they talk about how they're doing these longer pieces and people are actually sticking with it. And the 360 is um, getting multiple sources of a story from, and it's trying to bring the community together. And they, a lot of us have been saying that television news is a really exciting place to go and innovate. It makes me wonder if that's why Warren Buffett, we should get you to try and talk to him. I'd like to know why did he, <laughs> yeah, he, he can set that up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> try that up. Warren, get on here. Um, he, uh, cause he was invested in the Lee newspapers and then he um, took his investment out of that. He left it in good hands, but he moved his money over to carry the debt for scripts. And so if you look at the local television landscape, they're really only kind of four big players. There's Perry Souk, who has Nexstar in Texas. And then there is David Smith, who owns Sinclair, which many people think of as a had been traditionally a Trump mouthpiece. And um, and it does seem clear. Sinclair was the syndicate that would put together these packaged pieces, pretend it was local news and, and tell, you know, Channel 9 in Wichita to make two and a half minutes for this. That's right. It doesn't right. feel like journalism to me. Does it feel like journalism to you? <laughs> State <laughs> propaganda. Yeah. So you've got, they own two, let's just give everybody 200. It's something like that. So scripts that Warren Buffett owns most of the debt for has like 200. And this guy seems really great that I was just talking about. Um, he's doing this whole revamp of scripts. And then you have Sean McLaughlin. And then you have Sinclair that sort of feels like propaganda. They have about 200 stations. And then you have Next Star, Perry Souk out of Texas, has about 200 um, stations. And he has also started a nightly news show, um, the network news show. Um, and then you and then you have gray television down in Atlanta and they own a bunch of stations. And I do think that's a place we can start to spend some time, especially if my instinct is right about these addressable ads and that they're going to be able to take. Remember, the digital spend for the 2020 election was like over $11 billion in digital ads. It's such a huge industry now. And so I do just think that as a society, we need to demand that the platforms get more organized in who is news. We need to demand whether it's regulation around political advertising on the platforms and on these television stations that are going to become digital. Like we just have to demand more as consumers. It's on us to be more critical thinkers, but we also need to demand that they're return some decorum, as you say, where the networks used to have these news shows that weren't completely unpartisan. You know, I'm sure they all had agendas that were coming through, but there was this sort of like civic dedication to like a backbone of, you know, solid journalism in our country. And I feel like that that is it is there. There are many newsrooms doing it, but we need to start to identify which newsrooms those are and call out the ones who are basically propaganda. Yeah, it's interesting because people in calling out propaganda, you make the presumption that people don't want to hear propaganda. And yet there's often a lot of instances that that it's beneficial 
to just reinforce people's pre-existing uh, view of the world. And when you talk about these targeted ads, which you and I were, were, were joking I, when I said, well, so long as my mute button still works, I, I'm not really that worried about that. What I find more problematic, and I have to believe that would follow right on the heels of targeted ads would be targeted news stories. So obviously that's happening on a digital platform, but imagine turning on your local uh, CBS affiliate and because of whatever data they have about you, they know that, you know what, let's just send this woman 26 minutes of weather and, you know, maybe one story about a fire as opposed to, you know, if, if we can keep the eyeballs agitated, that has proved to be beneficial in terms of uh, ad dog revenue, yeah, right, correct. Uh, so I find that uh, the the targeted content around what constitutes news, you know, why is my Facebook news feed? Why does mine look the way mine does? Why does the one? Why does yours look the way yours does? You know, that's when you really begin to have a citizenry. Uh, that we're all like those, you know, uh, dogs who have just had a procedure and we've got those cones on our head. And we totally. can't see beyond them. Totally. One of the things I did have some people who are more uh, left leaning. I could tell were frustrated with my nonprofit index because it showed you who was giving money to certain new, new digital news um, sites. And some of these news sites have a specific focus. They're not just an investigative newsroom in Charlotte yes, or a you local newsroom. Of that, right. Yeah, they're they're specific. I'm not going to label any of them because that wasn't my goal was to say I, this one is partisan and this one is not. But I do think it's interesting that all of this nonprofit sort of funding from fun, some foundations and some very wealthy people are going to certain subjects. And some of them are very valiant. You know, I know that some of these people care deeply about those you know, movements mm-hmm. and they think that we'll be a better society for it. And, uh, and, and, and I would agree with them on many of those, but I just think we have to be aware that if one group gets to put money behind this topic, then another group who shares a different set of values can put it against this topic. So let's pick one that's not on the list. So if somebody decides to put money into a news outlet, digital news outlet, that's just about women's right to choose which I would be very much in that camp, then it definitely, you can't then call out the group that creates a news source that only talks about abortion rights. Um, So, you know, or pro-life rights. So I just think you have to be careful when you start to pick like subject-based nonprofit news. Yep. It's going to happen on both sides. Now, some people on the left would say, well, it's all already been happening on the right. And so actually on my mainstream index, I actually have 11, I think it is, newsrooms who are highlighted in yellow. And it's because I couldn't get enough information on who actually funds them or owns them. I've emailed them a number of times. I'm going to email them one more time today, actually. If they don't respond, I'm finally going to crowdsource it on Twitter. (laughs) And those are mostly right-leaning outlets. So I was trying to just have us all have this conversation. I'm not trying to like, you know, point fingers at anybody, but Mm -hmm. I I think that we need to start asking ourselves as we get to all mediums, as you and I discussed earlier, becoming digital, all of them being able to target and give you the the cone over the dog's head silo. We're just going to have to be really aware that this, we may regret some of these choices we're making in creating new digital news. We should probably be fighting more for um, Facebook 
to use their nonprofit dollars, which they spend a lot, and so does Google on news, we should be demanding them to have a formula where they put an investigative newsroom in 50 cities across the country. Or we should demand that they put their nonprofit dollars into all 1,000 NPR stations or in every pick another train track that exists like AP or Gannett newspapers, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. it should be more systematic. There should be a system. We should be able to say, oh, okay, Google and Facebook have taken all the ad revenue. They built the greatest ad machine ever. We don't have to keep pointing our finger at that. They they won the ad game fine. But if they're going to hand out money and they should hand out money, in fact, I would argue they should have a formula for paying for news. But if they're not going to get regulated into that or do that in their own will, they should at least take their donation dollars and put it in a way that looks nonpartisan and systematic and, and, and bring us, you know, really high quality local news that helps us shore up this backbone again. Yeah. So you mentioned something about having them pay for the news. And that that's also mentioned in the USA Today piece from last week. Tell me why that would be important. If you follow this, Rupert Murdoch, actually, you know, for the guy who seems to be disrupting our news system, he seems to really value news, I say, in the op-ed, because he actually used um, his power that he has in Australia with the Australian government to argue for a formula that would pay for news. And it looked like it was going to happen. Facebook shut down all of their um, Facebook pages and in uh, news pages in Australia because they were going to have to pay for them. And then they finally went and when off. When you say time. pay for, you're talking about. So so Facebook would have to pay the providers of those news of those news stories essentially to uh, replicate them on their on their platform. Yeah. And not even the whole story, just the link. And so all of a sudden Facebook was like, well, we can't do that. Like there's, this is ridiculous. Like we can't. And Google was like, we can't do this. So they go off in a back room and they negotiate with Murdoch, both Google and Facebook, and they give him the money he wants for his newsrooms. And then all of a sudden, whoop, the formula arguments off the table, but because <laughs> he got what he needed. But I think that. Um, so does that imply that Facebook and Google agreed to pay Murdoch for, for News Corp produced news? They pay in the U.S. Yes. And they do in the U.S. too. This is kind of one of the dirty little secrets is that many of the big newsrooms in the U.S. are actually paid by Google and Facebook. Now they get, you know, millions of dollars, whether you're the Washington Post, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you're getting money. But no one that doesn't have to be revealed. It's done privately in private negotiations. Um, Emily Bell, actually, at the Tau Center, has written a lot about this, um, saying that we have this weird relationship where we're basically the big guys are getting they're striking their own deals if you remember i wrote an article for cnn on this a number of years ago um they facebook announced the news tab program and so there was this big press conference in new york news corp was one of the biggest you know, recipients, but no one really disclosed their numbers there. You can find articles and I link to them where I can in my index where they've um, talked about how many, you know, on average millions they might be getting at some of these big news newsrooms. But the basically the simple thing for the for people who are new to this is really big newsrooms are getting a big cut from Facebook and Google that they don't reveal. And then smaller outlets are getting these that are nonprofits are getting nonprofit grants, which I list in the index. And I just think that this sort of helter skelter approach is probably not the right idea. And I think that we need to 
have a better program. And the platforms can either get out ahead of regulation and come up with this idea I've just suggested, which is have a system, a very transparent system that makes sense to all of us and not random of where they're going to give their money. Or I think that we should regulate a formula to pay for news. Well, you had mentioned the philosopher William James a little bit earlier. And uh, I'll mention the 21st century philosopher, John Mayer, who in his song, Waiting on the World to Change, he has his line that says, because when they own the information, they can bend it how they want. You got it. (laughs) So let me ask you this. After all of this arduous research and this compiling and the construction of these of these databases, um, what gives you optimism? There are more voices in the news than ever before. And we need to include everybody. And that's just awesome. And I think if we could set up some standards for either how the platforms recognize and pay for news and how the public demands newsrooms act to be called news, Mm -hmm. that would be a major success. And I think the fact that you and I are having this conversation and that the indexes that I put up yesterday that I kind of built on a shoestring as a side project to my rest of my day job has have had such a big interest in the last week. Mm-hmm. That tells me that we're on to something and we need to keep asking for these questions as citizens because it's our country and it's our responsibility as the bed, the, you know, the bedstone of democracy to get it right here because mm-hmm. we can't get it right here. It's, it's going to be really dangerous and we need to all, I think there's enough of us thinking about this now and we're starting to be heard. Those of us who've been thinking about it for a long while and it's hard to be heard above all the lobbyists and the corporate money. Right. But those of us who aren't part of that are starting to be heard. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. You know, we, we live in an age, as, as you've mentioned a number of times of the, you know, we are eminently trackable every single thing. And literally everybody knows there's there's nothing preventing every single news story that appears in a digital platform for you to be able to right click it. And, uh, you know, a little bubble pops up and you get a byline. You maybe you get the editor's name uh, and then who owns the publication? You don't have to draw any conclusions based on that. But that information is provided. And so therefore, as a consumer, whether that information has value to you or not, at least it is accessible to you. Can I give you two metaphors that I hold on to as sort of North Stars these days? Absolutely. So one of the one of my colleagues, I won't call him out, but he's always like, I don't get it, Heidi. But it's such a good metaphor. (laughs) Whole Foods, when it started and I was out in San Francisco when the early Whole Foods was there and everybody's like, oh, the wacky hippie with his Whole Foods. Well, guess what? It changed the whole grocery industry. You started to know who the farmer was and where the food came from and if it was organic, you know, like that. So that's a metaphor I hold on to. The other one is this wonderful guy named Ray Goldberg, who 30 years ago at Harvard started this thing called the Agribusiness Initiative. And at that time, the food industry was chaotic the way that um, the media industry is. And like, you literally didn't know if you were getting horse meat 
or cow meat. I know that's upsetting to people, but that was the state of things. And Ray brought together, and I had lunch with Ray yesterday. He's an amazing person, 92 from North Dakota. He's just incredible. And he's so worried about the media. He calls me and emails me like every day, like, Heidi, are you getting further with this? (laughs) Have you solved this yet, Heidi? (laughs) I need more people. So, um, and, 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 and he says, you know, you need to bring them to the table. And what he did is he brought together the farmer and the slaughterhouse and the food distributor and the seed people and, and you know, the fertilizer. He brought everybody together. And his first meeting, he says that it was terrible. Everybody was yelling at each other. But this this core group literally transformed our food ecosystem and put in place these sort of like organizers that helped them function better for the health of the nation. And I think that that's what we need now. Was it perfect? Is our food industry perfect? No. But I think that we need to come together on this. And it's going to be, as I said, voices that aren't paid by lobbyists or paid by platforms or in the pocket of some agenda. Like we, we, this is really important. And our democracy is at stake. And I don't know if we put the rules around political ads for targeting, like sell me all the shoes you want, sell me all the trips you want, take all my data for that, but stop radicalizing people through political ads. And that is what we have to, we have to really um, push hard on these things because I'm very nervous about our democracy. It hasn't gone away over the last election. It's, it's still there. The problems are still there and it's going to get really loud as we get close to 2024. Yeah, it's it certainly is. And the work that you're doing in the in the work that you're doing with your associates at the uh, Harvard Institute for Quantitative Social Science, the uh, Future of Media Project uh, is doing its part to to bring some light and transparency to this. Uh, I'm wondering what. And this may be too big a question for for you to answer, representative of your organization. Um, But what is the plan to sort of take this out of academia and 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 make it feel like it's sort of actionable, empowering information for the, you know, the lay person? We're still in nascent planning. I think that the Ray Goldberg model is one we're looking at very closely. As you know, in academia, things work because funders come and decide they want to help us build something. So I would definitely take some funders to help us build the Ray Goldberg model for media. Mm -hmm. And I also think that we're uh, modeling out and looking at different ways that we could bring evidence-based information from academia, not just Harvard, from all universities into the system. We need more people to help us figure that out. But those are the two places that we're spending our time. How could we convene the people that really have a responsibility mm-hmm. to step up and think about this seriously instead of just their pocketbooks, which is hard. And um, secondly, how do we get some of this beautiful evidence-based information that lives in our universities from Florida State to Arizona State to Duke to Harvard to UC Berkeley? How do we get that into the stream and into newsrooms? Um, those are the things we think about, but we, we don't have a de- definitive blueprint yet. We're still early days, but we'll take all the help we can get. That's excellent. So uh, if listeners are uh, intrigued and they want to get a look at these uh, indexes that, that you've created, uh, are they publicly accessible? They are. They're, uh, the best thing to do is follow me on Twitter. That's not to give myself a shout. It's just that's where I put everything at Heidi Leg. Um, and if you and that's go L-E-G-G. to- 
L-E-G-G. And if you look up Heidi Leg Media Index on Dr. Google, you should find these. But they're at the IQSS website. <laughs> All right. Terrific. Well, I am so glad our paths crossed. And I'm so glad that you were able to make some time to talk about this important uh, topic. Uh, it's not going away. Uh, so, you know, I, I would uh, I would appreciate the opportunity as we move down the road, as we move I was about to say closer to 2024, but I just can't bring myself to say I mean, that right I'm now. not there yet, but we need to be on it now, Michael. So you're doing your bit part by having this conversation with yeah. me and everybody who cares about this and isn't in the pocket of someone um, needs to come forward right now and help solve this problem. All right. Well, again, Heidi, thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future. Me too. Thanks a lot, Michael. Okay. Take care. Again.